All right, why don't you guys open up to Isaiah, and we're going to be starting in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5. In March of 1909, the keel was laid for the ship that put all other ships of the day to shame. It was to be a ship so grand that no other sea liner could come close to its comforts. It was to be so expensive that no other shipbuilder could afford to challenge it. And it was to be so stout and so technically advanced that it would earn the reputation as the unsinkable ship. This reputation became so often repeated among the passengers and the crew that an unmistakable air of arrogance began to surround the ship. On one recorded occasion, an unknown Titanic crew member is reported to have said to an embarking passenger that God himself could not sink this ship. On the night of April 14, 1912, just a few miles away from this ship, named the RMS Titanic, on a much less majestic ship known as the SS Californian, a lowly telegraph operator named Cyril Evans was working. Late into the fateful night, the captain of the SS Californian, Stanley Lord, brought the ship to a stop in the midst of the icy Atlantic, realizing that they were surrounded by an ice field. The captain came to the wireless operator's room, and he ordered that Evans begin warning other ships in the area of the icebergs. Evans, the wireless operator, immediately jumped to action, contacting the closest ship in the area, the Titanic. On board, the wireless operators were busy interacting with a wireless station far away at Cape Race in Newfoundland, Canada. They were catching up on a backlog of multiple messages from the wealthy passengers that were on board. When the warning came across from the Californian to the Titanic, the two ships were so close and the power was turned up so strong on the Titanic's receiver that the warning came across like a thunderclap and almost blew the headphones off of the wireless operator's head. His name was Jack Phillips. He was the operator on the Titanic. Now, rather than turning the volume down, listening and hearing the warning and acting upon it, Phillips quickly responded to Evans, Shut up! Shut up! I am busy! I am working Cape Race. So Evans, having completed the orders given to him, turned his radio off and went to bed a short while later. Five minutes later, the Titanic hit the iceberg that would start the process of sinking the famed ship. It resulted in the death of over 1,500 people. Now we, with broken hearts and 20-20 hindsight, we would cry out with one voice to this infamous wireless operator, please, we beg of you, calm your busyness. In the midst of your busyness, we would beg of you, heed his warning. In the text we have before us this morning, the famed prophet Isaiah is crying out to Judah to help them to understand that on the horizon, a very, very dangerous foe is lurking. Assyria, like the iceberg that sunk the Titanic, is lurking in the distance, ready to inflict damage at any point. And what Judah needed, what they needed so desperately, was their God. They did not need more help from man. They did not need to rely on themselves. They needed their God. And as we have looked at the beginning of Isaiah that serves as the book's introduction, what we see is that Judah had become just like the rebellious kingdoms surrounding them. Their religion had become mere tradition and show bereft 
of any meaning or true relationship with Yahweh God. And remember that their call as a people was to draw the nations to the God of all righteousness, justice, mercy, and love. This was the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the God that called them to this. He says through uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, you can write this down, it's Deuteronomy 4 verse 5. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And he says to the Israelites, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us? Remember that Yahweh is always translated in the English into the Lord in the Old Testament. Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God had called the Israelites to be a people that drew the nations to him. And so in the section we covered two weeks ago, God called them to turn from their ways of uh, the pagan ways of the world and become a kingdom that stood out among the people around it. But unfortunately, as we saw, a kingdom goes the way of its rulers. And the desires of our hearts, the people of the kingdom, prove who those rulers are to be. It's been said that the people do not elect rulers to be who they want to become, but they elect rulers who manifest the heart as it already exists. And so we finished two weeks ago in the section of Isaiah 2, looking at the new Jerusalem of the latter days, at a time when God will reign among, reign among his people. And we rejoiced together last week in the midst of our agape Sunday, our agape meal, that we can look forward to the day when God reigns and we are fully his people. As we will see today, though, as we cover a very large section of Isaiah the individual people of Judah were in grave danger of never reaching that rest. The individuals in Judah were hearing the cautions, the call of Isaiah. Isaiah stood firmly planted in the midst of Jerusalem, crying out prophetically, heed his warning. A warning that we would be foolish to dismiss. And so his first statement to us today in Isaiah chapter 2 is this, God's loving call. Come and walk in the light of the Lord. Come and walk in the light of the Lord. After painting a beautiful picture at the end, or at the beginning of chapter 2, Isaiah, on behalf of God, entreats his fellow Judahites to walk in the light of the Lord. He says, what the new Jerusalem will be, what God calls us to. And then he says this amazing verse in Isaiah 2, verse 5. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He's standing among a people that are covered, immersed in sin. And they don't even see it. And he calls to them and he says, please look at what God intends. Come and walk in this light. What does this mean, walk in the light? It sounds so cliche. It sounds like something we'd throw out in between the middle of let go and let God or God's got you or some other Christian cliche. Well-meaning, definitely. But he's not saying this as a throwaway comment. 
There's a specific meaning here, and it's found in a comparison of the two cities. Last week, we looked at the faithful and the unfaithful cities, and Isaiah again uses the same literary technique of comparison to say, look at the old Jerusalem and look at the new Jerusalem. The beginning of chapter 2 is look at the new Jerusalem and what it is to be, and then he says here in chapter 2, verse 6, let's take a look at the current Jerusalem of his day. And we, again, must look at this, not seeing just Jerusalem of the day, but asking the question, does this statement apply to us or our nation in any way? Take a look at Isaiah 2.6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. And the verb here that's used is not a command. He's not commanding God to not forgive them. He's literally stating, and and I think the translation should be a bit different here. Some of your other translations have it. You will not forgive them because they are filled. Now, a quick comparison of this section back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You guys can go read it on your own time. We, We looked at it last time. It'll have these five contrasts as you notice it. The first thing, between the comparison of the two Jerusalems, is that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the nations were to be drawn to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were God's people acting in righteousness and justice and love. But what had happened was that Judah instead had been drawn to the nations. They were drawn out to practice the very same things that acted against the God that they served. The second thing that we see as we compare the two is that what the nations desired of the true Jerusalem, the true Zion, was the spiritual wealth of knowing Yahweh. But see, what had happened in Zion, what had happened in Jerusalem is that they wanted to make money. Their success was based on their materialism. They're filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures, Isaiah says. They were full of things from the east, the pagan rituals against God. They were filled with the, rich, uh, with the riches of wealth. They would get up early and work late and their entire life would be devoted to making money. Thirdly, Zion was supposed to be a place of peace where weapons were actually changed into things that you would use to plow and to, to reap your crops. But instead, Jerusalem has become a war machine a place of armaments. There's no end to their chariots, no end to their horses. In those days, horses and chariots meant armaments, warfare. Fourthly, the world wanted to know the true God, the one that gave his law from Zion. But instead, what Judah was bringing them was the very same idols they worshipped, the idols of things made with their own hands. Isaiah says their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Their time, their talents, their treasure, everything was going to themselves. They wanted to know the true God, the nations did. But what Judah was bringing them was the false gods of the world. And lastly, as you compare the two, 
In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the nations came to the good and righteous judge who accepted them, loved them, washed them, received them. But here, what's happening in Judah is that God has to, by his justice, come, judge, abandon, and not forgive. The sin is so great of the people that he has no other chance. He would not be a righteous God without doing that. Why does God hold them in such derision here? Why is he speaking through Isaiah with such harshness? The reality is, is because they should have known better. Why? Because they had the truth right before them. Look back at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Why was it that the people went up to New Jerusalem? The people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the Torah. The literal Hebrew word, the Torah, the law, the instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Turn back to Isaiah 1.10 and look at what he says there. He condemns them and he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the Torah of our God, the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. See, the people of Israel, Romans tells us, had been given the very oracles of God. God had spoken. The God that created the universe had spoken to mankind and it was through these ambassadors of Israel that we, the pagan nations of the world, were to hear the wonder of God. And they were to be led by people that so treasured the word of God that there could have been no mistake as to how they were to act. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. I covered this a few weeks ago when we were talking about kings and kingdoms to paint the picture, the background of Isaiah. In Deuteronomy 17, take a look at verse 14. Remember that the law of God was given not because it's exactly what God wanted them to do, but it came, as Galatians tells us, because of sin. And so the Israelites were already sinning, and so many of the laws that God gives in his Levitical law, in the law of Deuteronomy and Numbers, is not because he wants them to do these things, but because he knows that they will choose to do them, and he has to regulate it. And so in Deuteronomy 17, 14, he knew that they would choose a king, and so he says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Notice, he has to be under my covering. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner or a pagan over you. God is not uh, ethnically challenged here, right? He's not politically incorrect. What he's saying is, don't let someone who worships a different god be your leader. Only he must not acquire, notice what he says here, many horses or armaments for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. In other words, don't align with countries that do not hold your principles in order to sell or buy weapons. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. No polygamy for the ruler. No womanizing for the ruler. Lest his heart turn away. What? To other gods. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Why? Because wealth corrupts if it's not used for God. 
And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he, the ruler, may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. See, the ruler of Israel was to be a leader in the principles that they were supposed to follow. And you see, it's in the teachings of our God that he is light. It's in the very word of God that we treasure in this church. See what it says here, Psalm 43.3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Come, Mission Fellowship, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It is knowing God that brings us light, and we can only truly know God through his word. The Spirit does not act outside the confines of God's word. Now, because they had forsaken the law of God, they had forced God's hand to be against them. Turn back with me to Isaiah 2. They had forced God's hand against them. Not only had they not put rulers in place, that followed the principles of God. But they had for sure themselves forsaken all these things and the rulers were leading the way. And so it finishes with verse 9 there. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Guys, the wording here, the language here, is language of war. You can check it out on your own time in 1 Samuel 13, 5. It says that when the Philistines were coming against the people of Israel, they started to hide in the clefts of the rock, in the cliffs, burying ho- or digging holes to hide from the enemy, running in fear because the army was coming against them. Here you see the exact same language, but it is not the Assyrians that are against the Judahites here. We must understand that this is God who is against his people who are unrepentant. For the Lord of hosts has a day, it says, against all that is proud and lofty. Notice the repetition. Against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. And against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols shall utterly pass away. The people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats. In other words, the ones in the caves and the ones in the holes. To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Now, this is not a God who has simply reversed course. He is not capricious and determined against his people. Please be assured 
dear saint today, if you are a follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus that has given your life over to him, he is your king ruling your life, that God does not simply abandon those who fight with him. But he is surely against those who fight against him by honoring idols of wealth, sexuality, family, leisure, and anything else above him. How could Isaiah say in verse 6, you have abandoned, the word there in Hebrew is forsaken your people. I thought this was the God that never left us nor forsook us. But guys, all five times that that statement is made in Scripture, that he never leaves nor forsakes, he's speaking to the leader of his army that is going into the land to defeat the idolatry of the land. If you are for God, then be for God. If you are against God, then look out, is the point of that statement. See, this process of accepting idolatry, idolatry in their life or our own is the same. It will start with a slow but sure dismissal of God's word as something secondary and unimportant. Slowly but surely, you will find that you have no need for God's word or that it's against you or that you feel condemned by it. And rather than pouring in and pressing in and searching for Jesus to give you truth by his spirit, you'll start to notice that it's gathering dust on your bookshelf or that portions of Scripture are gathering dust. I love sitting in the Psalms, you might say. I love sitting in Ephesians, you might say. And meanwhile, Genesis through Deuteronomy is silent. It should be noticed that this was 40 years before the actual attack of Assyria happened. It was a slow burn. And what's noticed here is that they were relying on their own strength and that of man in general as the thing that will save. You see, within a generation, full destruction was coming. And I fear that many of us, because we are so myopic in our view of timelines, is we think, it's okay if I'm slightly apathetic. The next generation will pick it up from there. They will be more apathetic because of the example that we're giving. And within a generation, Christendom in the United States will be worse off than it already is if we do not take up God's stern command. That's the next thing you can write down. God's stern command. Stop trusting in the strength of man. Stop trusting in your own strength and the strength of mankind in general. Isaiah says in chapter 2, verse 22, at the very end there, he says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. In other words, he's just a created being. For of what account is he? Dear Christians, I appreciate your opinions on the election. Stop sending them to me. They are but dust. Put your hope in God. It is at this point that Isaiah begins to describe the current action of the day in which he preached that God was working behind the scenes to set the scene for the judgment of the nation of Judah. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3 and going all the way through verse 15, we have bookends that speak very clearly that this is a God at war. Verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts. And verse 15 says, Declares the Lord God of hosts. The Hebrew is Yahweh Tzva'ot, 
And it means Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, commander of the heavenly army. It's basically what Jesus is when he says, Peter, calm down. Do you not realize that if I asked my father, he would send 12 legions of angels? See, the Jesus we serve is not weak or soft. He is a man with strength under control, amazing fortitude and self-control. Isaiah picks it up here in chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful musician or magician, and the expert in charms. I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them, and the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother and the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. Judah had a problem. The poem in the first five verses here paints a bleak scene that we do not understand in our country because we think of missiles and F-18s, F-33s, or whatever they are, F-35s. We think of a different kind of warfare, but the warfare here is what happened in these days. When a city would retreat behind their walls, what you would do is you would wait them out. You would cut off their food line, their supply line. You would begin to slowly but surely make sure that they were dying. And as their commanding officers took their place on the wall to see the enemy, your best archers would pick them off one by one until all that was left were the new recruits. Those of you that study history know that this is what happens in any war if it lasts too long. The West Point graduates are the ones that take command and the veterans that have been in the theater of warfare for years do not respect them because all the commanders are dying. This would cause chaos among the city that was under siege and social disorder would take its place. And the unfortunate part was that the nation of Judah thought they were fighting the Assyrians. But again, I say to you, who was besieging them here? It was the Lord using the Assyrians as his tool to fight against the people who were his chosen people who refused to follow him and fight against the idolatry of their day. They had created their own false god and their own false religion. Take a look again at verse 6. I'm going to read it again to you. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, that leader will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence." As the people are under siege, one of the greatest signs that the judgment of God is already upon the nation is that the ones that should be leading will not. You cannot find a good man in the land. Instead, they will grasp for anyone to lead. I want to read you something that was written 20 years ago by J. Alec Motier, who was writing a commentary not on the United States, but on this section of Isaiah, these two verses. Listen very closely to me as he describes why the divine judgment of God was already upon the people and what the signs were. Divine judgment on society begins to manifest itself in the disappearance of solid leadership 
and the appearance of immature, capricious leaders that are given to sudden mood or behavior changes. Society becomes divided. The age gap opens up. Values are at a discount, and those who should be despised by the people of God are the ones that take the initiative. These are his words. An air of despair dominates the elections. All this arises from moral and spiritual causes. It is not the result of failures of policy, but of speaking and acting against the Lord and provoking him. Blatant sin inviting its just reward. Isaiah is not describing events, but caricaturing attitudes where leadership merits not thoughtful, but hasty action. Not a search for the best candidate, but taking whatever is at hand. Not qualifications, but showiness. And this is the point that despair has set in because the Lord is judging the nation. We are no longer a Christian nation, and we have not been for decades. The current situation shows us that the judgment of God is upon us. Why does this happen? For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds against the Lord defy his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Wow. Guys, if this is not ringing in your ears, then you are not paying attention. What was the terrible sin of these people? Well, we've already looked at some of them, but turn with me to Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, and take a look at verse 48. Ezekiel 16, verse 48. Ezekiel spells it out, what Judah had done. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. In other words, they're better. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food. Do you know that we throw away enough food in our country to feed our country twice over every year? We throw away more food as a country than all of Africa creates in any given year. And you had prosperous ease, he says to Sodom, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Guys, we want to make these verses about them out there who are immoral, who are not good citizens, who are not voting for the right party. This is about America. Prosperous ease, excessive food. And we sit on our high horse worried about our kingdoms and our retirement and our bank accounts. That is why we vote for who we vote for, isn't it? 
but we do not aid the poor or the needy. Now, pull back, take a breath here for a second. Why? Well, because this is heavy. But also, because we as a church, I feel, are hearing the call of God. As we reach out to Haiti and help in the midst of all that's broken down there, as we reach out to Marcel and the churches in Burkina Faso, and as we roof churches and help the poor and the needy there, as you guys give of your tithe and offering, giving your treasure, part of how you show who rules your life, to God here at this church, we help the poor and the needy in our church, those that have times of drought in their own financial health. I believe that we as a church are doing this, but my call to us today is, guys, we've got to carry out the divine mission to be the people of God practicing righteousness and justice before the nations. Now, I want to say this, and I know I'm, I'm probably going to get emails, so please just don't send them to me. But let me say this. There's a massive movement among the church in America today to pray away our ills. We're renting out movie theaters and watching Christian movies and then praying afterwards. Please hear me. I am all for prayer. But to believe that God is waiting to heal our nation from its depravity, greed, and idolatry because of our lack of prayer is simply misguided. What needs to happen is not more prayer, but more repentance. Until we as God's people take seriously his mandate to read his word and manifest his character to the people around us through a united community of righteousness and justice, God will continue to say to our prayers, as he says to the people of Isaiah's day, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Until we as a people can get the idea that life is not about our wealth, not about our fun, not about our kingdom, but God's glory. And do everything with our time, talents, and treasures to put that forward and to repent of the very same things that to the outward appearance show us to be pagan people who do not worship Jesus. We can pray till we're blue in the face and God will not hear us. We must repent. But luckily, Isaiah, in the midst of his crowd, like me today, there was probably silence. And so he takes a moment back in Isaiah and he says this in Isaiah 3.11, or 3.10, excuse me. He says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. He pauses for a second to remind those of them in the crowd that were following Jesus fully, and I pause for a second to remind those of you that are fully following Jesus in this life, that have given time, talents, treasure, that have given your very life to Jesus to expand his kingdom, it will be well with you. Do not hear Isaiah's words or my tone or anything as against those that are truly his. But then he picks right back up and says, Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the people's. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Wow. The Lord turns to a judge and says to the people 
that are apathetically following him, that are fighting against him by their very words and deeds, he says, I stand to take my place against you to contend. He's speaking to those of us that have blatant, rebellious sin in our lives and know better. Those of us who have read his word. I'm starting to get to the point as a pastor where when somebody comes to help me enable them in their sin, I usually just say to them, guys, you know what the word says. What does the word say on that? And they go, I know, I know. We shouldn't be doing that. Yep. It's true. And then... In the midst of pronouncing this verdict, God starts to give another comparison through Isaiah that we will finish off with, and it's this. God's gracious, gracious warning. He is coming. Maybe not in our lifetime, but he is coming. And we will all one day have to stand before him as he comes either as a God of war or as a loving bridegroom. And he does not make the choice of how that happens. We do. By the lives we live, by the rule we give him and not mankind, he will come either as a God of war or a loving bridegroom. We'll see two sections here as we finish off uh, in, in through chapter four here. Chapter four is very short. We will see two sections tied together by a common phrase, the daughters of Zion. And if I have offended you already, I, I probably knew that I was going to do that because I'm talking about uh, one of the, the couple of things you never talk about, uh, politics. Uh, if I've offended you uh, in some way, shape, or form, then perk up and listen strongly here because this is very, very important. He combines the two with this phrase, daughters of Zion. And we first see an extremely illustrative poem that speaks of the daughters of Zion of the city against God. And then we see the daughters of Zion that are repentant and in relationship with God. And these daughters symbolize the people as a whole. Let's take a look at chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. I don't know how you tinkle with your feet, but we'll just go with it. I don't know that a six foot ten man can tinkle with his feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. And yes, he's talking about exactly what you think he's talking about. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils, and all the selfies that portray them. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and we will wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. See, it was a society that cared nothing about the internal character, but everything was for show. 
This is why the leaders it selected were not people of character, but simply for show. They were entertainers. Everything in these women was designed to attract attention. How they stood, how they moved, what they wore, what jewelry they adorned themselves with. And we understand this, don't we? That makeup in itself, clothing in itself, uh, showing yourself an appearance, a good appearance, is not in and of itself evil. It's what your motivation And we understand this even further because we live in a society that is all for show, even within the Christian community. All is done for idolatry of self-importance, self-protection, self-improvement, rather than for the glory of God. And the result will be the wrath of an almighty God who did not lift himself up, but humbled himself, even to the death on a cross, for you and for me. And so looking at these metaphors that he uses in verse 24 through 26, Isaiah states that instead of health, there will be disease. Instead of wealth, there will be poverty. Instead of beauty, there will be shame. Instead of rejoicing, there will be mourning. And instead of freedom, there will be enslavement. Isaiah leaves us with a stark picture. The men of the city had been decimated to a point where six out of every seven men were killed. And a city that once was secured by walls and towers was now a heap of ruins. Flames most likely lifting up to the sky in the background and the city gates destroyed. And a lone woman, the very symbol of Jerusalem, battered, muddied, and bruised, falls to the ground in between the columns that once held the city gate. All that is left for her at that point is to wait for death to take her. How could it get any worse? How could it get any worse, I ask? Well, rather than repent and follow God's law, that the women of the city should have known, that the men of the city should have known, they cry out, we just need men. We need to be married. We don't care how it happens. Just marry us. And they say we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. And we glance over this, not knowing our Bibles well, because we think, ah, they just wanted a home. No, even in their cry, they were rebellious. Why? Go to Exodus 21.10. Again, God does not give these laws because he wants polygamy or wants slavery, but the people will already, were already doing it. And so like our laws today, they are for the purpose of regulating sin, not trying to make a perfect society. The laws given to Abraham of justice and righteousness were God's heart. These laws were, uh, okay, if you're going to do that, I guess I'll regulate them. And here's one of the things he says in the midst of polygamy, the situation that would have been happening in Judah. He says, If a man takes another wife to himself, this is 21.10, he shall not diminish her food or her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, he shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, he won't get the bride price. And so you can see that these women of Judah crying out and saying, you don't have to give us food. You don't have to give us clothing. You don't have to give us our marital rights. They were literally enabling the men of the city to objectify them, treat them badly, and go against their God. Even in their cry, they were rebelling against the God that they serve. And they were either so rebellious that they went against God's uh, opinion in the first place, or they were so apathetic towards it that they could care less. Even to the last, even when destruction is all around in the very signs and manifestations that God is judging the people for their action, their rebellious heart would not bend. 
Woe to them and woe to us if we do not bend, if we do not break. You see, there is an air of unsinkability around Judah as a nation at this point. And I would say that there is an air of unsinkability around us as a nation at this point. It does not matter who you listen to. Now that the the elections are almost finished, you hear all the commentators, some are more common than others, saying, well, it's okay, we'll always last, we always have, we always will. It's so technically advanced and so stout and so firm and so strong that it cannot sink. Even God himself cannot sink it. Look out for icebergs, my friends. When we start applying phrases in the Christian community like, well, got to go with the lesser of two evils, we have a problem. We have a major problem. Do not go with the primary evil. And do not go with the secondary evil. Go with Christ. Hans, who are you saying we should vote for? God be with you. Vote your conscience. But realize that you have multiple options. Every candidate, write in and abstaining. It's a binary choice. God be with you. We, as Christ's people, must look towards Christ because we are the ambassadors of his word in the midst of these people. We as his people, as a nation, we must heed his warning and draw people to the light of the Lord. Stop regarding man. If not, he will come as a God of war to destroy destroy all of us that are idolatrous and rebellious against his good and just commands. And there are those of us here today that need to heed his warning. And yet, there are many of us here today that might cry out, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We might cry out, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my own transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There are those of us here today that want to be done with the brokenness around us. Our spirits are broken. We want to see righteousness reign, not Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. We do not want to settle for the second of evils. But we want to implore the leadership of Jesus. And so Jesus says to you and to me today, just wait. Endure. Because why? Look back at Isaiah 4. And we'll finish up here. In that day, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. You see, the tree of Judah had been cut down, but the branch will remain. And out of Judah will come the lion of the tribe of Judah, one known as Jesus, the anointed king, the true king, the Christ. And the fruitfulness of his people will fill the land. 
Verse 3, he who is left in Zion and will remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Hear me, folks. I in no way think that there is any difference between Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and myself. We are three bloodied, muddied, and horrifically sinful people. God will take those of us that cry out to him, and he will save us if we follow his way. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now pay attention. Do not miss it. Those women, the righteous women of verse 11 that were in the midst of the city waiting for truth and justice, the ones that are stuck in the midst of a wicked and broken generation, the ones that have been freely given grace, not because they deserved it, but because they, by their words and deeds, turned to the one that could save them, turned and requested that God would remove their disgrace. These daughters of Zion will be freed and led by God. And rather than being unclothed and laid bare in shame by the God of war, these daughters of Zion are brought to a canopy, a refuge, a shelter. The word canopy there in the Hebrew is only used three times in scriptures, or Scripture, and it's called a chuppah. It means a marriage chamber. Where a bridegroom and his bride consummate their marriage, become husband and wife, become one, never again to be divided. The wife covered in the protection of her husband. The root of that word is to cover. You can think of Ruth going to Boaz and saying, cover me. You can think of the people in Malachi crying out to the Messiah, cover us with your wings. A covering. And it is only done in marriage as a wife gives herself to her husband. And the husband becomes the refuge, the shelter, the chupa. And this brings us great joy. Why? Because we remember the words of Jesus in John 14. Last place I'll turn you. Turn there with me. John 14. We remember the words that Jesus says. And I want you to pay close attention. Because I believe that Jesus is giving us a gracious warning. He's telling us, walk in the light of the Lord. Do not heed man. Take my gracious warning. I want to come to you as a bridegroom does his bride. And Jesus says to you and to me today, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Believe in God. And believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And immediately you all start thinking about the song that plays on the radio. Don't go there because it's a miss 
teaching of this scripture. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, notice what he says here, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You see, in the Hebrew, the word yada, which means to know, it's used often to discuss intimacy. And Jesus' phrase here, I will take you to myself, is not like I'll give you a ticket to go for a ride on the roller coaster. It is I will take you, as a husband says to his wife on their honeymoon night. He is taking the bride to himself. Where? To the place that is attached to his father's house. You see, in Hebrew tradition, the man that was about to be married would go to his father and ask to build onto his father's house a room that was meant to be the honeymoon suite, the place where he would take his new bride as they establish a life together before he can go out on his own. And Jesus is speaking of a honeymoon here. He is not just saying, come to my father's house so we can eat cereal and play football. Okay? He's saying, I will bring you to cover you and protect you in love, to take you to myself. You see, Jesus will return for his bride, the church, and he will be our God, and we will finally fully be his people. His death on the cross paid the bride price to purchase us back from death and make us his own. His blood became the sacrifice to remove our shame so that we did not need to sit and wait for death in the midst of destruction. And his love is creating in us an image of God that will glorify God throughout all eternity. In this day and at this time, do not trust in man. I beg of you, do not trust in man, even slightly. Dear brothers and sisters, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. And again, it might not be in our lifetime, but remember the book of Isaiah spanned many decades. And for those of us today that continue in blatant rebellion against him and his character, he is coming as a God at war. A God at war against those who would break his heart. He's coming as a God of war to strike down all idolatry and those that would give themselves to it. But to we that love him and have repented from our shame and asked him to remove it and walk in daily relationship with him, he comes as a loving bridegroom ready to take us as his own. And this was the gracious gift of salvation that has been offered to mankind since the garden. It is not of our own works. It is simply from us falling down at his feet and saying, we are bloodied and bruised and muddied by the sin of the world and the sin of our own hands. Please save us, Jesus. Save us, Jesus. He comes as a loving bridegroom, ready to save us, to make us his own. Today, we must heed his warning, and we must decide in whom we will put our hope and our trust.